enterprise versus consumer is is a very different mindset and approach that you know I, I see people struggle with if they if they aren't comfortable with it. But think about it like enterprise, if done correctly, is more like chess. Consumer products are just gambling, as far as I can tell. It's like it's gambling plus uh, it's maybe like like fantasy football. This is equivalent to magic a show about the tech wizards behind the most influential companies and platforms. I'm Quentin Clark. And I'm Steve Herod. Together we go deep with tech execs, product developers, and engineers about how they dream, design, and build their way to scale. In this episode, Nick Caldwell, the VP of Engineering at Twitter. Nick joined Twitter over the summer after a long career building enterprise products. He now leads a team of 700 engineers on the consumer side, presenting him with a very different set of daily challenges. Yeah, we'll hear about that. Nick was hired at Twitter because he's really good at managing teams and setting product roadmaps. He got his start at Microsoft, where he worked for more than 15 years. I worked with him there when I was leading the data platform organization, SQL Server, BI, and those things. And he was leading big parts of engineering for some of those products. To understand the origin of Nick's particular superpower, we have to go back to the days when Microsoft was transitioning from on-prem software to cloud service products. This was the 2011 to 2014 era. We had a few very nascent products we called Azure, but had not really yet committed to transitioning our whole enterprise portfolio over to cloud services. And we made that shift over this time frame, and it was a huge effort. Everything known today as Azure was created during that time. Everything changed, our architecture, the business model, culture, how we engage customers, how we ran our teams. It was messy. And I just remember it being uh, not just messy, but but confusing to be trying to do all that at the same time. Because, uh, you know, are you prioritizing the end user product, the infrastructure? Initially, there was a lot of, of lack of focus. Nick was a natural language processing engineer. He'd been working on improving spell checking, calendar invites, and search functions using natural language. He also started applying NLP and interactive data visualization to Microsoft's early cloud-based business intelligence tools. But he noticed it was taking a long time to get these new products out. For the first version of our uh, BI uh, cloud offering, it took about 50 hours to deploy, which was, uh, was insane. And that was our starting point. It was a remote team that wasn't meeting expectations. Sometimes we'd even ignore directives from HQ. But because these guys were remote, they would just pretend that the phone lines were going dead. <laughs> so they'd be like, guys, you need to come up with a better plan. Like, it's, it's been weeks. Why are we still at 51? Click. <laughs> and they call back in. Sorry, you dropped. Didn't hear what you had to say. Nick thought, I could do this way faster. So he brought together a group of NLP engineers, put them on cloud operations, and started deploying the first version of Microsoft's Power BI. Even if I've never done cloud tech before, and even if my team is mostly NLP people, I'm going to take a shot at this for the good of the team so that none of us have to sit in this meeting again and hear people, uh, hear people dodge uh, the request. And that was how I, I transitioned from you know, being an NLP machine learning engineer into, I guess, a generalist, you know, someone who could do, uh, do cloud software. It also helped change him from an engineer into someone who could manage engineers. Up until that point in my career, I'd only, I was known as the NLP machine learning guy. And after this, I had developed a, you know, more of a reputation of person who can take on, you know, any sort of team and, and just get things done quickly, like a strong executor. And he also learned a powerful lesson. And, you know, what I learned is, you know, it, it, mission is uh, more motivating than tech. 
I've taken that with me uh, for every team since. As we'll hear, Nick is a very mission-driven guy. That benefited him, like when he was at Microsoft. But sometimes it created a bit of a clash, like when he first joined Reddit as the VP of engineering. We spent some time talking with Nick about those early days working in enterprise and how they compare to his roles at Reddit and Twitter, which have very different cultures. We'll start the interview back at Microsoft, where Nick began managing much bigger teams of engineers. But simultaneously, you're, you're going through a big ramp in the number of people you were managing, I believe. What was it like kind of as a leader who started with you know a couple dozen and then kind of got up over 100 people? What were some of the lessons learned there? Yeah, no, I mean, we, I think Power BI, by the time we were done, was like 300 people. So it was incredibly uh, fast growing. You know, and, and we were growing those teams in Microsoft. So like the way you grow a team in Microsoft is, is it's not like I went external and hired 300 people off the street. Like in Microsoft, you're glomming together different teams. So it had this sort of real challenge of how to pull people together into one cohesive culture and, and rally them behind a single mission. And, and honestly, we grew so fast. And I'm, not, I'm not sure that I, I definitely won't claim that I was able to make this completely cohesive. It was like managing four or five different tribes, each with a slightly different way of working. Um, you know, there are people who came up through SQL background. I had started my career in office. Um, it, was it was about trying to figure out how to talk to all of them at the same time. And um, it was, for me, very, fairly intimidating. Like, you know, that, you know, one, I'm still like a fairly new GM trying to figure out how to bring people together to, to work on what is going to be what ultimately became one of the fastest growing products. And uh, what I came away with was a, a real appreciation for being able to clearly uh, talk about vision uh, and roadmaps and execution at, at scale. That is like, you know, the, the, with, with hundreds of people, you have to be able to crystallize what's important down to like marketing slogans and get, get your, your leadership, your next level down to, to repeat those as well and add the right sort of inflection on them so that's relevant to, to their specific team's interests. And that sort of recurses all the way down the line. So it was that. I mean, it was it was learning how to do all of that as fast as we possibly could. Intimidating, but a great responsibility. You mentioned before, Nick, and, and you're right. I do remember being in some of these meetings talking about using D3 and, and some of the sort of cross-organizational tension. But at that, at that time and at that level of the organization, I mean, you're still responsible for making technical choices, right? And while you're scaling an organization and driving culture and, you know, and shifting people's mindset, there's also a lot of technically gnarly things to work through, right? So how, how did you think about which things to really dive into and where to spend your time on the deep technical issues? And, you know, give an example of one of those things that we really struggled with back then. I think for, for me, the high order bit was speed. We were, we were time to market. And there's a broader context here, which is if we were not successful in figuring out a BI product and a BI strategy that worked, you know, there were other acquisition targets that Microsoft could have gone after. So for us, with that backdrop in mind, we were like, hey, we need to figure out something quick. And that often meant like going outside of the core Microsoft uh, tech stack and leveraging uh, external tools. I think uh, D3 and modern web were probably the biggest fights that we had <laughs> like with the, with the internal teams. There were strategic fights as well. I, I think that whether or not BI should be owned within um, it, its own product of, 
family versus being integrated into Excel was a, another big thing we had to deal with. But I, I think from a, from a tech perspective, the visualization layer was the biggest challenge because Microsoft is successful in large part because it, it's, a, it's a platform uh, company. Like it, it builds great reusable developer tools. You know, a large ecosystem can come in and, and build, you know, custom solutions on top of, of, of those toolings in that platform. And what we were saying is that, hey, for faster time to market, not only are we not going to build using the existing platform, we're going to use D3, which at the time was still relatively new. I think nowadays it's, I, this wouldn't be as controversial of a decision, I don't think. But at the time, D3 was still relatively uh, unvetted. And we were saying we're going to bet on this external open source library and ignore all of the pre-existing <laughs> Uh, libraries and the ongoing investments that Excel and other teams were making in their own viz stack. That was a tough one. And the way that we uh, went about it, uh, I I hate to gloss over all the politics and make it sound easy, but (laughs) we, we did bake-offs. I mean, we, we multiple times uh, took, uh, you know, uh, components we had gone and prototyped in D3 or other uh, JavaScript based frameworks we uh, embedded them in iframes, showed how they were performing on mobile. We, uh, we did side-to-side with that same technology built into the client. It was a lot of experimenting and proving to other teams that we had something here. It wasn't that we ever convinced them, to be clear. It was more that with the data that we would bring to the table would, would always be just enough to get us to the next conversation. <laughs> and... If you do that enough, eventually you ship the product and you've just shown the value. And like that was something we had to, to kind of um, take as a tax, to be honest, uh, all the way through to, toward the end. I, I think ultimately we ended up tr- with a strategy whereby uh, for the Viz layer, we were going to have kind of a, a intermediate sort of uh, shim that would allow uh, the Excel visualization commands to be interpreted and re-rendered using our Viz stack. It was some really wild thing that we had incorporated as sort of a compromise. But by the time uh, Power BI shipped, uh, what we were seeing is that D3 and the fact that like we had built on JavaScript unlocked uh, the ability for third parties to go and build all sorts of custom uh, data visualizations. And that became the message of the day. And we, we sort of stopped paying attention to this, you know, the Viz needs to work in Excel and this broader platform and just pointed out that the choice of this technology enabled an expansion of our developer ecosystem in a way that was incredibly strategically valuable. Like to this day, for example, I don't think you can write data viz extensions to Tableau, for example, which is our biggest competitor at the time. Whereas with Power BI, that was effectively available right out of the box. So strategy ended up answering, um, uh, making the final call on that technology choice. Yeah, I bet a lot of the listeners are are sort of nodding their heads as they hear kind of the you know, I guess the startup thinks about it as like a speedboat and, and you have the battleship, uh, Microsoft in this case, but you know, any large company has a lot of players. Um, can you just maybe talk a little bit more about some of the pros and cons of trying to lead this entrepreneurial effort within such a big platform? And there's definitely a lot of pros too, but kind of as you think about it, what are some of those trade-offs that are uh, most interesting to you? Well, the, the pros were that you, I'm going to, I'll put the cons aside. The cons are uh, dealing with the existing sort of players. But the pros are if you can get enough support and momentum behind you, it's like you're you're got a jet ski that has the same firepower as a battleship, <laughs> right? Like, you know, we could uh 
acquire companies. The fact that we were able to spin up, you know, from a very small, like 15-ish person team to 300 people within the space of like a year and a half, you know, that's extremely hard to do if you're a smaller company. A big company like Microsoft, those resources can, can be pulled together very, very quickly. From a tech and product integration standpoint, once we had, once we went through all the hoops of convincing people that we were on to something from a product perspective and our tech choices made sense. Once we had proven out the thesis, we got enormous leverage, right? Power BI went from not having really any significant usage to millions of, uh, of MAU uh, in the course of about a year and a half. And, and a big chunk, and it is a great product, don't get me wrong, but you know, we have to acknowledge that a big chunk of that comes from being integrated into this larger uh, ecosystem. The, the downside, though, is, is the, uh, it's the internal politics. When you build something new in a big company, it means you're disrupting something old. And um, big companies with well-established product lines want predictable revenue. They don't want new things coming into existence, which might cannibalize something that's already working. And you know, they, they view it as not necessarily the upside for building something new and innovative. They view it more as the risk of disrupting something that is already in place. And that, that tension existed you know, even past the MVP. Like we were just constantly trying to convince people that there was enough space in the world for, for, for example, Excel to exist alongside Power BI. And, you know, I remember this conversation was escalated all the way up to, to, to Bill G multiple times. So it was, it was sort of like, oh, another three months have gone by. What are people going to have us in front of Bill for this time? <laughs> is it the VizStack today? Is it, we're, is it we're cannibalizing from Excel? Is, you know, it, it was having to, to do that sort of song and dance uh, every three months, which, to be honest, uh, you know, if you're, when you're in it, in, in, in the, if you're in the startup team, it feels like a, a heavy tax. I mean, it does take a lot of effort. When I look back on it now, uh, I realized that those conversations actually did allow us to to land in a in a place where Power BI what wasn't just like this startup thing that had been built that by the end of it it was fairly well integrated into the broader uh, ecosystem. Sometimes from a tech perspective, uh, and more often from just a uh, a go to market perspective, you know, integration with Dynamics and uh, Office SKUs and, and that sort of thing. You know, at the time, I wouldn't have said this. At the time, I would just complain. But <laughs> in retrospect, I can see that they had a lot of value. Yeah, I mean, that was somewhat exacerbated in terms of the complexity because the BI problem space was really multifaceted within Microsoft, right, between Office and Excel and the data platform organization that, that we were over in. Anyway, so Microsoft, you know, a lot of good years and, and that transition uh, into building Azure services out of, you know, successful on-prem products, you know, a great set of learnings. After that, then you, you left and you went on to Reddit. Um, and you were at Reddit during this scale era, during this, this time when Reddit had to get to really, truly hyperscale. And you led a team of engineers there when there was a, a little bit of an anti-management culture of the company as well. And so you walked in, set the scene a little bit. When you walked in there, what was it like as you walked in? What were the <laughs> biggest things that you triaged in terms of the challenges you had to, you had to tackle? Well, I'll set the scene for me personally. You have to remember, I was a GM at Microsoft selling enterprise software, <laughs> and uh, and and I decided to leave that environment where I had to wear like a blue suit and brown shoes every day 
to, to go to Reddit, which, um, I was like the oldest person in the company. And I remember my first day on the job, I like wore a blazer and oh my God, like I, I felt like an idiot. Um, so very, very different cultures. And, um, you can imagine that this team was uh, 35 people who were used to setting their own destiny. Um, I, re- I remember there was like a legend that uh, someone told me when I joined that, that um, because there were no managers in the company, you, you know, engineers could uh, could work on whatever they wanted to. And in one corner of the office we were in, there was sort of a, a, a table, like a hand carved table. And I, I always wonder why it was there, like someone had built this table. And I'm told that, yeah, like one of the engineers just decided that their job was going to be to make this table. <laughs> So they come in every day and they're in the corner polishing this thing. Uh, that is the environment I walked into. It, was, it wasn't necessarily anti-management. I think that it was a, a lot of smart people waiting to be told what management was and what benefits would, would come from it. So for me, it was uh, day one, like maybe I shouldn't wear his blazer so often. I didn't give it up. Uh, you know, it's just part of my style. But uh, I did <laughs> did start my T-shirt collection so I could connect with people a little bit more. Um, the other thing, though, it's it's just trying to figure out uh, how who in the team is open to the type of responsibilities and benefits that come with management. So I spent the first, I think, couple of weeks just meeting with leaders who were, uh, you know, very hungry to meet me uh, and express what their vision for the company. And I kind of kept an eye out for people who would make good management material, people who cared about other people, people who cared about uh, uh, deadlines uh, and people who uh, could be uh, thoughtful in terms of technology uh, choices and the overall strategy. And uh, I tried to explain to them that management didn't mean, you know, sitting around and being told what to do. It, It meant understanding, like a better understanding for everyone about the impact of what their day-to-day work would do and predictability that would allow our product team and our, and our other go-to-market functions to trust us more. And ultimately, like these were the things that would be necessary um, to, to scale. And uh, I, I think the other thing is I also identify people who just didn't agree with any of that. Like, you know what, I'm just no managers for me. I'm just going to do whatever I want and you can take your blazer and F off. Like, you know, there were a couple people like that, (laughs) but you know, I told them, Hey, look, you know, as we scale, uh, there'll be other places, uh, that you can work that, you know, you can have that environment. But, uh, you know, for us to go from 35 people up to, you know, hundred plus, we're going to have to have some semblance of structure and I'm going to make sure we we hire the best managers uh, we can to take care of our people and, uh, you know, be able to ship with some level of predictability. And I mean, those are very different cultures and very different products, uh, product cycles, how you distribute them. I mean, it's almost it's almost polar opposites. But uh, I, I like how you're talking about, uh, from a management perspective, certainly looking up for people, developing them, uh, schedules, predictability. Um, you know, I think those are pretty constant. Maybe uh, share what you found, like the, maybe you can pick pick out the dream engineer or even the dream group there, how would that look like different at Reddit versus the dream group at Microsoft or some of the others we'll talk about in a minute? Is there anything unique about a more consumer focused uh, company with that culture that you found to work better? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I I worked in enterprise in, in Microsoft, so that's the basis of my comparison. Uh, But uh, yeah, enterprise versus consumer is, is a very different mindset and approach uh, that, that, you know, I, I see people struggle with if they um, if they aren't comfortable with it. But think about it like enterprise 
if done correctly, is more like chess. Like you can you can understand all the players in the market. The market is generally well documented. Like in the BI space, uh, if you wanted to start do a BI startup, you can go get a Gartner BI report. You can crack it open. It'll tell you for the most part how people think about this space, and then you can add on to that and uh, maybe take an angle on it, which will position you somewhere amongst all of these well-known competitors. Uh, so chess. Uh, consumer products are just gambling, as far as I can tell. It's like it's gambling plus uh, it's maybe like like fantasy football. Like it's basically gambling, but you you use some data to try and you know uh, bet make your bets in the in the in the best possible uh, way. Uh, and the way that you execute in each of these environments is is very different. In enterprise, it is possible and required. I would say, to build very coherent, clear roadmaps that can be communicated with the field, as well as, um, to some extent, customers, so they they understand what's coming uh, day to day. With consumer products, though, you have to think through, there will always be a layer in consumer products where you actually don't know what's going to happen. And companies tackle this layer in lots of different ways to try and rein in the uncertainty you'll you know big companies you know like a google or a facebook they've got so much data that when you talk to those types of folks they're using data to rein in the the chaos the lots and lots of experimentation and so forth um, that doesn't work at smaller consumer products because you don't have the data so what do you do you, you might see a really small companies they've got the dial all the way turned up to um, uh, customer interviews like going and doing tons and tons of interviews and trying to get data in some other fashion but the thing is no matter which of these choices or methods uh, you, you use, the consumer market itself is still just unpredictable. <laughs> so you can do all the experimentation and all the different trials you want, but you, you have to internalize as, a, as an engineer or a product person that a lot of these things just aren't going to work. And you have to be willing to, to pivot uh, uh, frequently until you find something that does work gets traction and then you you know you follow that that growth trajectory and that that's the essence of the difference it's you have to be way more comfortable with um uncertainty and um surprises in consumer you know i'm at twitter now and it's like every other week there's some something which it's fun we'll see how i can hang on hang on to the horse here so after Reddit, you went back to the enterprise space. You went back and you joined Looker. And Looker's another business intelligence platform that was eventually acquired by Google in 2020. You got there in 2010 when the CEO was looking to help like scale the thing, right? Getting ready for that hyper-growth phase. There too, you're also able to apply some of the lessons you learned even in the consumer space. So talk a little bit about your experience there. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to correct that, I was uh, I actually got there in 2018. And the the CEO was business dev sales expert like uh, Frank Bien like I've learned more from him about uh, go to market than anyone in my life the guy's a genius uh, but what was missing was he he didn't really have a, a great handle on how to scale the R and D function um, so product and engineering he need a lot of help getting those groups to be be speaking the same language and and want to work to, together I, I think the essence um, of the I'm going to say problem, but once one thing that would highlight the tension there is when I uh, was interviewing for the job, I met the um, CTO, uh, Lloyd Tab, and he's one of the best engineers I've ever met. And he has this quote, though, which is, uh, the engineer has the pen. And that's how he's guided the product philosophy for, for the last, you know, uh, six years. And the, the problem with that is um, 
while it may be true in like early stage startups that you the engineer can have the pen, uh, particularly on a product like Looker, which is so engineering uh, focused. Uh, Looker is essentially a, a semantic layer for data. But as the product surface area scales, and particularly as we get more customers, the attitude sort of has to change to the customer has the pen. And additionally, as we get more and more go-to-market functions, more salespeople, more marketing people, et cetera, they need to have a really solid understanding of what sort of products are coming down the line so they can communicate those to the customers. So the challenge that we had uh, at Looker was that transition from sort of free-form execution with no roadmap and, and very little coordination between R&D and the go-to-market function to, to something that would be much more uh, predictable and strategic and uh, build relationships between these functions that are required to work together as, uh, as the company scales. So I think the, the core problem I had to solve there, though, going back to this, this engineer has the, the pen, if you go to engineers and you tell them that we're going to add a bunch of process to um, you know, add roadmaps and, and track your work, like I've never seen that conversation just... Sure. Yeah, no problem. It just doesn't happen. Um, you have to always find a way to help engineers understand like what what benefits they will get if they subscribe to to more uh, prescriptive processes. And in this case, uh, for Looker, it was I don't want to say fortunate, but <laughs> there was there was plenty of opportunities to pick up uh, and address technical debt alongside doing brand new feature work. Like one of the um, the most obvious one perhaps was uh, we ended up taking on a complete rewrite of our front end tech stack uh, going from like kind of a hodgepodge of JavaScript and custom libraries and other sorts of things that had accumulated over the years to react, which would be faster, easier for people to onboard uh, and more interactive, uh, simpler to maintain. So the way that we positioned that was, um, you know, Hey engineers, we're definitely going to take on addressing this technical debt, but how about we tie it to a strategic initiative around just making our dashboards and reports look more beautiful in general? And that way we can get design involved and come up with great new ways to, to host uh, or great new canvases to host images. Uh, PM is going to love it because it's not just um, you know, addressing old frameworks. And then engineers are going to love it because at the end of this, we're going to end up on a, a much more modern uh, framework. And um, that pattern, I was able to use that not just to, for things like dashboards, but it also worked for some of our back-end technologies and so on and so forth. Um, so that's how I sort of brought them along. And then when we started to talk about roadmaps, execution like immediately got better. Like, because people understood uh, what they were supposed to do and when. And the way I like to do roadmaps is to make it so that, you know, in the near term, we can do uh, things very predictably, very high accuracy. And people started hitting their goals. It went from like, we're missing goals left, right, and center, to people started hitting their dates. And um, there's a certain pride, I think, as an engineer, is if, if you can take on like a complex uh, problem, say you're going to land it in, you know, two months and then come within like four days of that. I mean, I've always felt, you know, and, and not just that, but also see it launch in the market and see how customers react to it. And we started doing that very, very frequently. And, you know, morale started to turn around and then trust started to be built with our go-to-market functions. The salespeople have been operating 
with no roadmap, which is very difficult for, for a salesperson. Customers want to know new features. They want to know how we're going to stack up against uh, competitors, and they want to know when we're going to close gaps. So if salespeople don't have that story, if marketing people don't have that story, you know, there's always going to be a tension between um, R&D and, and then our go-to-market functions. So that relationship started to get better. And, you know, long story short, you know, having a roadmap provides sort of a, a shared framework to talk about the future. I mean, that's the essence of what a roadmap is. The benefits of it, though, are they manifest in so many uh, different ways. And, you know, you can create those roadmaps uh, in ways that engineers don't actually have to give up control, that in some ways it actually empowers them to do more. And that's that's always the attitude I've taken to it. So before we we follow you to your next left-hand turn back into consumer, um, I want to ask you, you talked about frameworks and programming languages and, you know, resolving tech debt and that kind of thing. How is it sometimes when you're engaging in these conversations with engineers and you're talking about frameworks and programming languages, it ends up feeling like a religious question. <laughs> and so often you find yourself as a leader um, sort of having a discussion about which way to move with a lot of emotion behind it. So talk a little bit about how you've typically approached those conversations. No, that, that happens all the time. I don't want to pick on Twitter, but like Twitter, for example, has a lot of um, Scala in use. So we spend a lot of time talking about what the future of our, our tech choices might be there. No, in general, what I what I like to do to to address this sort of tension from engineers, which which comes from a place of sometimes personal preference, like I like this particular language better or I like AWS versus GCP more. I see that happen all the time. The, the, there's two ways to approach it. Uh, one is I kind of pop it up and I say, hey, look, like from a holistic view, like what would be better for the company? Like imagine it's not just you personally and your team wanting to make this technological choice, but imagine this company two years out, like we're going to hire, you know, 50, 100 people. Where would you want to see uh, those technological choices be from a strategic perspective when we have far more people uh, to, uh, to work with? So that's one way to do it, like take the, take the long-term view. On the, on the flip side of that, I, uh, I also like to avoid tragedy of the comments. <laughs> so I will always give local teams the opportunity to tell me that, hey, like actually we need to optimize for ourselves because there is actually something special and unique and we are a snowflake in this one particular area. And if you would only listen to us a little bit more, you would understand why. And ads platform is a great example of that in, in uh, both Twitter uh, and Reddit. Um, the way that you build an ad serving platform does require um, very specialized uh, technologies that you don't necessarily need to have everyone uh, in, in the company use. Uh, maybe a more common example that, that's emerging nowadays would be more like the ML uh, tech stack or, or things of that nature. So I think it's a back and forth that you know there will be cases where you have to let a team uh, do its own thing and, and just account account for that in some way. But on the whole, like, you know, we're all ideally uh, building a company together, not just any one particular feature or one particular aspect of the product that we, for, we, for the long term, need to think about R&D as, as one team and what would benefit the majority of, of folks. I don't know if the, we're getting, maybe getting too philosophical, but... <laughs> it's a philosophical podcast as well, so that works out. <laughs> 
Well, well, let's actually just close on this topic. You, you're at Twitter now. You're VP of engineering, and I think you have more than 700 engineers. Um, I know you've just been there a couple of uh, months so far, but you know, we've been talking about everything from the engineer having the pen to tight roadmaps. Just give us an early flavor of the different, the other differences you're seeing there, how you think it's going to play out, and uh, any expectations you have. Yeah, I guess I guess there's three things at Twitter. Um, I'm having a great time, by the way. This this place is uh, amazing. Um, you know, Twitter. I would say the first impression you, you get here is it is incredibly mission oriented, and more so than than other places that I've worked. Um, you know, if you follow uh, Jack Dorsey, the CEO on on Twitter, you can see that he is very frequently talking about social issues and Twitter's place in the world, and and so on and so forth, and that directly translates, I think, to uh, sort of a superpower that the engineers have. Um, you know, I won't go into too much detail, but they did hire me to help with some of these execution and, <laughs> and sorts of sorts of problems. But one advantage I get, you know, uh, that makes up for not having as clear uh, roadmaps and all the stuff we we're talking about before is that every engineer on the team, it's, they're supercharged by the mission. Like they really care a lot about the platform. The, the second thing it's um, that I'm have to going to learn how to deal with myself because we've been talking a lot about execution predictability etc uh, because Twitter is a a, a, a a platform that the world uses for communication the interrupts are driven by planet Earth uh, war in a particular country something crazy happens with the election um, celebrities having an off day like any of these things, can result in an interrupt that someone on my team has to, to deal with. Um, and I've, I've never operated in an environment like this where, where it's humanity can cause interrupts uh, to, to our R&D team. You know, and uh, I think th- that's, that's, that's where I'll leave it. I, I think those are the, the fun new uh, challenges that I'm, I'm dealing with at Twitter. So Steve and I titled the podcast Equivalent to Magic to honor those moments when the tech really just makes a magical experience or outcome or just under the covers magically just works. So we always ask, we always ask our guests this one question, what's a magic moment in your career when technology was just magic? I think for me, like it was sort of a transformative moment. I know we didn't cover this, but early in my career, I I fell in love with um, the internet, the early internet, I guess, uh, you know, bulletin board systems and, and so on and so forth. And um, I decided to set up my own BBS. I don't think you could do this nowadays, by the way, with 10 year old set up their own BBS. I don't know if they would even allow that. But I remember, <laughs> well, for whatever reason, my, my parents allowed me to, to set up a BBS on our home phone line. And I remember one day someone uh, called in internationally from Quebec. And I had a conversation with this person. And I, by the way, I grew up in PG County, Maryland, like, you know, 95% black uh, suburb. Uh, I didn't travel internationally probably for another 15 years. Uh, yet here I was in, in the comfort of my home having an online chat with someone from Quebec in, in half French. And for me, that was magical. Like, it was a moment where... Um, like I always love tech. I, I always love coding, but it occurred to me that, um, you know, this was something that could give me access to opportunities and people anywhere on the planet and that I didn't have to limit my ambitions to, uh, to be PG County, Maryland, that with technology, uh, I would be able to do, uh, to meet or, or go anywhere. And for me, it was transformative, uh, personally and, uh, really changed the way that I, 
I thought about my career and my opportunities. It's, it's funny you mentioned that bulletin board. I was just laughing because uh, I don't know if you guys ever use CompuServe. Mm-hmm. Do you even remember CompuServe? Do you know that's still alive and they're still creating channels and it's like, it's still a thing. I had my first kind of channel that I was participating in way back <laughs> on CompuServe. <laughs> There's no way that's still around. I wonder if they still, I guess people still have uh, Hotmail yeah. email addresses. I see. I, I use Hotmail email well. address for like family <laughs> basically is all it's left to now. Oh, Hotmail is modern compared to CompuServe. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks so much, Nick. That was really a cool and, and broad-ranging conversation. We appreciate your coming on here. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate the time, and, and thanks for letting me talk about my, my history, and hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, Nick. Nick Caldwell is the VP of Engineering at Twitter. Equivalent to Magic is a podcast from General Catalyst, a VC firm investing in powerful, positive change. To learn more about our investment approach and our portfolio, go to generalcatalyst.com. The show is produced in partnership with Postscript Audio. Stephen Lacey and Mary Dew produced the show. Jamie Kaiser helped edit the show, and Sean Marquand composed the theme song and mixed the show. Rhonda Scott manages marketing and communications. Please give us a rating wherever you get your shows and spread the word on social media. Stay with us as we go deep on the technical stories behind the world's most influential companies. I'm Quentin Clark. And I'm Steve Herod. This is Equivalent to Magic. <laughs>